From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. So my hope for readers is that readers will go back to biblical rape stories they might already be familiar with and be open to other kinds of ways of reading. I think that my other hope is that readers will be sort of unhappy. And this is something maybe controversial. I talk in the book about unhappy reading, but by that, I mean not thinking that there's just one kind of way that you can understand a story, but sort of unhappy in that there isn't a kind of clear solution to all of these problems, but there is a rich awareness of the ways that biblical rape stories are fuzzy and messy and icky and keep dragging us into their interpretive orbit. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Rhiannon Graybill. She is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, and today we're discussing her recent book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible. And as the title implies, we are going to be dealing with some adult subject matter in this conversation. So if you have young listeners, I'm going to ask you to maybe turn the radio off until a time when you can listen in private. But with that being said, Dr. Rhiannon Graybill, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I have read the book. I am really excited to talk to you about this book. I think that it opens up the subject of biblical studies in some new and exciting ways, some ways that, as you say, lean into some of the fuzziness, the messiness, and the ickiness of the text. But as a way of introducing our listeners to what your book, Texts After Terror, is trying to do, I've asked you if you could read a small portion from one of the early chapters, a passage that kind of gives the overall shape of what we're doing here. Great. So one starting point of this book is that the Hebrew Bible, like Alfred's Gilead, and that's a reference to The Handmaid's Tale, presents a textual world filled with sexual violence and misogyny. You do not need to look very hard in the pages of the Bible to find suggestions that women are impure, women are dangerous, or women's bodies are leaky and contaminating. Women hold less value than men. A male child is preferable from birth onward. Women are subject to be controlled and exchanged by men. And frequently, women are subjected to sexual or sexualized violence. But while these features of the text are widely recognized, feminist responses to sexual violence do not pay sufficient attention to the fuzzy, the messy, and the icky as they figure in biblical texts. Because these features, which are another way of naming the ambiguity, complexity, discomfort, and disgust of biblical sexual violence, are neglected and under-theorized, the hermeneutic tools that we use to read biblical texts of terror, that is, texts that display rape, sexualized violence, or extreme misogyny, are correspondingly insufficient. In response, this book offers a feminist theorization of biblical sexual violence that starts from the fuzzy, the messy, and the icky, and that adopts interpretive tactics and strategies from feminist and queer theory more broadly. This framework, in turn, makes possible new feminist readings of biblical texts of terror. And that was our guest, Dr. Rhiannon Graybill, reading from her book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible. Well, 
I wanted us to start there because in that passage, you lay out several pieces that I think are going to be important for our listeners to, to grasp onto and begin to wrestle with. First of all, I want to deal with this phrase that you reference in that passage, texts of terror. That's a phrase that was developed by, I believe, Phyllis Tribble. If you could tell us a little bit about what the background of that phrase, texts of terror, is. Sure. So the phrase text of terror is most closely associated with and comes from Phyllis Tribble, who is a major feminist biblical theorist. Her first book, which is called God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality, sets the paradigm for feminist reading of the Bible. And then text of terror is the next book that she writes. And it's really an attempt to kind of reckon with those stories that feel like they're key or terrible or misogynistic, that they can't really be redeemed for feminist criticism. And she talks a lot in that book about how our job as feminist critics is to sort of witness terrible things and to tell their sad story. And so this phrase is associated with Tribble, but it's also used really broadly in biblical study to talk about um, especially texts of violence against women, stories of rape and gynocide and things like that, but also sometimes also sexual violence against queer people, for example. But this, so this phrase has a lot of charge in biblical study. In calling my book text after terror, this is a polemical move, right? So I'm interested in thinking about what we can do beyond what Tribble does, because the paradigm she sets up is fantastic. It's also a paradigm from the mid-1980s, and it's drawing on really not even 80s feminism, but kind of an earlier part of the feminist movement and important and wonderful, but I'm interested in what else we can do with tech. I do want to say that after, I don't think of as instead of, right? I think about after, you can think of after as a kind of tribute. We see that a lot in like musical, naming musical pieces of way of thinking beyond or building on. But the other thing I'm interested in calling my book's text after terror is asking, what can we do with these difficult biblical stories after we felt the terror of the text? So opening up more interpretive space. Well, and I, I want to dig into that notion of the after, and, I, and we'll be sort of unpacking that as we move into the conversation. But on the way to that, I want to pause for a moment around this phrase, feminist readings, because I want to make sure that some listeners are not hearing that in a way that I fear that they might, which is, well, there's a natural way to read the Bible, and then there are these kind of identity-charged ways to read the Bible that we bolt onto it, like feminist readings or queer readings. There's the normal reading, and then there's the feminist reading. Could you speak a little bit to why it's not like that? Yes, and we often reinforce that it is like that in the discipline in a bad way when you have, say, an introductory course and you talk about how to read the Bible and like week seven is like the ladies and then like week eight is like racial and ethnic criticism. And then like, there's like maybe a day about disability or something like that. I very strongly think that is not what it means to interpret the Bible. There is no kind of neutral standpoint from which we approach the text. There's no objective way from which we can find the truth of the Hebrew Bible. What is sometimes the traditional methods of biblical criticism or what we call the historical critical method, which in large part emerges from German biblical studies. It has some sort of nasty sides of Protestant supersessionism. It's got some problems with race and gender. But so the field there, this is itself a method that has a history. And so there's a way of sort of presenting biblical studies as real biblical scholars do history or archaeology. And then we have a few feminists who kind of come in and talk to us about gender. And so very strongly, I think that is an incorrect approach. And partly also to go back to your earlier question about why I call my books text after terror. Sometimes I think that feminist criticism is called in to deal with these really interesting, complicated stories and get everybody else off the hook. And so we will take a, we'll let the feminist critic deal with this story because it's about gender. And then we'll go back to doing 
you know, reconstructing eighth century Judah or something. So I think that history is an important approach. I think that things like reconstructing the original texts are important. They're not my primary interest in this book. And I want to strongly suggest that they are not better or more authentic kind of forms of biblical criticism. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Rhiannon Graybill. We're talking about her recent book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible. Well, this is something that you come back to at several points in your book, Texts After Terror, the idea that we never come to a text, any text, innocently, that our readings are not innocent. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I think it's very important to think about as interpreters, we're always already implicated in the interpretive process. And I, this is a common idea in a lot of, you know, post-structuralism, post-modernism, generally realizing the Enlightenment maybe wasn't everything it was cracked up to be. So this is a common kind of principle. In framing it in the language of innocence, I also do that intentionally, right? Because we want to think about, right, nobody's innocent in approaching a text. So the historical method is implicated in race and gender and other kinds of assumptions. But also there's a way that I think that we as interpreters, especially with ethical or theological concerns around a topic like race, we can think that we are sort of innocent because we are just looking out for the women or looking out for the survivors and claiming moral purity to our relationship with the text. So I want to call out the kind of traditional historical approach, but I also wanted to realize that it's not that a feminist or a queer approach is better and then it can claim a kind of moral high ground. So we're always already implicated in this, which is something that I think connects the project of biblical criticism to thinking about sexual violence, which is also a cultural conversation that we're all already in the middle of. And we can't pretend like we're just neutral observers coming to it. Well, and I want to really stick with this for a few moments, because if I'm hearing you correctly, first of all, we, we want to not necessarily preference one way of reading. And the feminist way of reading doesn't have the moral high ground here. So innocence is telling us that we're always already implicated in a set of beliefs, a set of ideas, a set of presuppositions. But I'm also hearing some other gestures in this move towards calling out innocence. And that is, as you're talking about the wider cultural pieces, I'm thinking about biblical purity culture. I'm thinking about the assumption that we make in a lot of narrative around rape when we encounter them in the news of lost innocence and things like that. So how do these kind of wider cultural pieces begin to fit into this raising up and and highlighting this notion of innocence as well? Absolutely. Purity culture is a huge part of it. Even rape culture, more broadly, the kind of assumption that a victim needs to be an innocent victim for her story to count or for that to be a kind of narrative. You can think about the way that we like to lift up certain people as examples. And one of the things I thought about a lot in writing the book, and I also include in the book, is the way that survivors of sexual violence often push back against this kind of script about innocence or purity and how that's required. And so I'm interested in, I think it's politically important and ethically important to critique that in our everyday discourse. And I think it's also important, both for those reasons and as a kind of interpretive gesture when we come to biblical text not to insist upon or assume the innocence of characters like Dina or Tamar. Not to say that they're guilty in some way, but to sort of problematize the way that in particular, the vulnerable, the very young girl is the kind of figure that gets held up in sexual violence conversations, right? You can think about the way the victim is coded. And we all know that it's often racially coded. It's often coded with ability. It's often coded with age. And so I think moving beyond the kind of safety, deceptive safety that an appeal to innocence can offer us, whether it's 
reflecting on our current moment, reading texts as a kind of interpretive position. I think all of that is really important and really interconnected. I really appreciate the time that you're taking to set the stage for me and our listeners with regard to these concepts. And on the way to getting the stage fully set, there's one other piece I want to introduce. And it's a thinker that you bring up both at the beginning and at the end of your book, Texts After Terror, the post-structuralist Barbara Johnson. And she has a notion that she says, and you, you talk about it in the beginning and then you expand on it towards the end of the book, that we come oftentimes, especially to texts like the Bible or other well-known texts, thinking that we already know what those texts mean. Could you tell us a little bit more about how that assumption plays into our reading and why you want to interrupt that assumption in the way that you're approaching your own methodology in texts after terror? Johnson offers this beautiful description of reading and the way that when we read a text, the first time you read a text, you assume you already know it's there. And so you have to read it again to actually encounter it for the first time. There's an anthology of her work, which is called Surprised by Otherness. And I think this is such a beautiful phrase because it opens the possibility for thinking about surprise and thinking about reading as a kind of openness or a kind of finding something unexpected there. I think this is often the case in the Bible. I know from teaching the Bible to undergraduates, from talking to people, we assume that we know what the Bible says. Now, we don't actually all assume it says the same thing, but we have this assumption about its content. We have an assumption about maybe like the ethical direction it takes. And I think that one of the projects I'm interested in is just slowing down and reading again and opening up other kind of possibilities. And so I think surprise in reading is something really important. Johnson talks about that. Eve Sedgwick, who's another theorist I talk about in setting up the project, has this great critique of paranoid reading in the way that as readers, we can come in. We already know it's in the text and we're paranoid in our orientation towards it. And she talks about reparative reading as a kind of alternative, and that includes being open to the possibility of good surprises. And I think it's very easy to feel paranoid about the Bible, right? This book has hurt so many of us so much. Of course, you're going to want to approach it defensively so it can't hurt you anymore. But if you set aside that attitude and you're open, there's a way that you can find that kind of other spaces for interpretation. If you could put into a sentence or two how you hope that a reader would come away from reading your book, understanding the Bible differently, understanding the Bible in this new surprised way that Barbara Johnson suggests, how would you characterize your hope for those readers? So my hope for readers is that readers will go back to biblical rape stories they might already be familiar with and be open to other kinds of ways of reading. I think that my other hope is that readers will be sort of unhappy. And this is something maybe controversial. I talk in the book about unhappy reading, but by that, I mean not thinking that there's just one kind of way that you can understand a story, but sort of unhappy in that there isn't a kind of clear solution to all of these problems, but there is a rich awareness of the ways that biblical rape stories are fuzzy and messy and icky and keep dragging us into their interpretive orbit. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Rhiannon Graybill. She is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. And today we're talking about her recent book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. 
www.thepeopleofgod.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Rhiannon Graybill. She is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. And today we're talking about her recent book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible. In the last segment, you mentioned another theorist, Eve Sedgwick, and the idea of paranoid readings. And one of the aspects of paranoid reading is an idea called strong theory. I think it would be helpful at this point in the conversation to bring that in and clarify what the idea of strong theory means in this sort of approach to reading. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. A strong theory, sort of like the name suggests, is a theory that has really good explanatory power. So it's a theory that you can use to explain everything. Psychoanalysis is a good example of a strong theory because everything is about sex and death, right? Everything's about your mother and like a vulgar Freudian kind of reduction. Some forms of Marxist theory are strong theory, right? Everything is about class. And the good thing about a strong theory is that it can explain anything. But the bad thing about a strong theory is also that it can explain anything. And often the problem with a strong theory is it can actually squeeze out the possibility for other kind of weaker theories, which can allow us kind of different sorts of attachments, different ways of exploring story. And sometimes even a strong theory can be so strong that it will gloss over the specific differences of, say, for example, specific different biblical rape stories in order to fit everything to a larger paradigm. Well, and now that we've got the pieces in place, I want to start asking some more detailed questions because Barbara Johnson's idea that somehow we we already know what these stories mean and Sedgwick's idea of strong theory being we have the explanatory model to explain everything. When we come to the Bible, and particularly when we come to the messy stories of the Bible, like the rape stories, what you observe is a real tendency, not only in historical critical readers, but also in feminist readers sometimes to come in to assume that they already know what these stories mean. Can you talk a little bit about how those assumptions play into misreading of those texts? Yeah. So these stories in particular, and I think it's the worse the story, the more we come into it and think we know what it means. And so the classic example here is the story of the Levite's concubine in Judges 19, which is a story about gang rape and then murder. And so that story, but also even a story like the rape of Tamar in Second Kings. So these are stories, biblical rape stories that are familiar, and we've developed a kind of way of talking about them. Generally, very strongly, it emphasizes the innocence of the victim the terrible thing that happened. There's a common kind of rhetorical flourish in academic writing. You hear it a lot in sermons and pop religious things too. You know, can you imagine the terrible thing? Can you imagine what it would have been like for Tamar, right? Can you imagine being Dina and this sort of the unthinkable suffering of the woman? The problem I have with this reading, and it really started to come out to me in teaching these stories to undergraduates and knowing about sexual assault on campus, is the way it's presented is that rape is this horrific, life-changing, life-ruining thing, but then to be reinforcing that narrative to classrooms that included survivors in the classroom, I started to feel really icky about my role as a professor, sort of repeating nothing. Can you imagine anything as traumatic as the thing that happened to you two weeks ago? Look at this horrible fate for this biblical woman. And so I think that comes from a strong place 
of empathy and an attempt to sort of work against the patriarchal traditions in religion, but it can also be used in ways that really aren't helpful as interpretive gestures and also aren't helpful as gestures of solidarity or gestures of ethical relationship to the text. If I'm hearing you correctly, so the empathic experience of having students in your classes that you knew themselves were victims of sexual violence, coming to a kind of easy strong theory reading of a rape story. And you talk about this in your book, Texts After Terror. Like we, we tend to narrativize when we admit that the rape story is there, it tends to get narrativized as this is almost a fate worse than death. And what I'm hearing you saying is that you're resisting having those kinds of readings be the go-to default reading in part because you were seeing the effect that these kinds of readings were having on students there in your classes. First of all, have I heard that correctly? Yes. Okay. And having heard that correctly, I'd love for you to say a little bit more about how empathy could and should guide our our reading of a text as central as the Bible. Yes. So this is a great and complicated question. So part of the experience of teaching these texts, right, you brought up the idea that rape is a fate worse than death. And to that, I think one important thing to remember, right, is that but a lot of the victims survive. And I think that that seems obvious to us, but we actually don't talk about it sometimes in thinking about these biblical stories. And so I think there's a way when we want to align ourselves with being on the right side and supporting survivors and giving voice, we can have sort of really good intentions, but good intentions aren't always enough to necessarily make our readings do what we want. And so I think it's important in reading a text to open the possibility of multiple different ways to relate to a story. So part of this might be emphasizing sort of the violence and the effects of violence. Part of it might be finding a way to think about what happens to those characters after the scenes of violence. We might also think about the way that stories of sexual violence touch on other stories. So we can think about, I talk a little bit in the book about sticky affect, which is a concept I get from Sarah Ahmed, which is this idea of a the way that our feelings can be contagious and a feeling even in a text can be contagious to you as the reader, or if you can think of talking to some, the way that we talk to each other about traumatic experiences. The other kind of piece of this, I think, has to do with register. And so in the book, and I've used these words already in our conversation, I talk about sexual violence being fuzzy, messy, and icky. And this is language that to some people is somewhat off-putting because it's very casual, it's very vernacular, and that's intentional. I was interested in thinking about how we talk about sexual violence and we talk to each other, especially when we want to talk about something without necessarily making it official. So you can think about something like it was sketchy or he was creepy or I had a weird night. You know what I mean when I say something like that, but I'm also not specifically using certain words like sexual assault or something. And so I'm interested in thinking about those everyday conversations about sexual violence and how those might connect with also talking about it in the text rather than a kind of top down This is how we have to feel about the text. And I I want to come back to these three words, fuzzy, messy, and icky. But on the way there, I want to linger for a moment on a word that you used in your answer just now. You used the word survivor. And I'm recalling that in your book, as you're laying out the terms here in Texts After Terror, you say sometimes when people talk about rape, they talk about victims. And sometimes they talk about survivors. And you intentionally are going to use those terms interchangeably. And I'm thinking about victim and survivor in light of the title, the word in your title, after. Someone who lives after 
an act of sexual violence. Could you talk a little bit about the kind of tension and the kind of possibility in blurring the lines between uh, victim and survivor after an act of sexual violence? This is something I really struggled with in writing the book, just what terminology to use, because the term victim, right, has been critiqued rightly for putting you in a passive position, a position where things are done to you, you don't have agency. The term survivor has also been critiqued for saying if something terrible happens to you, you have to have agency, you have to respond in a certain kind of way. I tried using victim dash survivor and it just felt a little bit clunky writing, but go back and forth and using all of them. It's interesting. There have been writing by victims and survivors critiquing each of the terms. And so there's a great book called Queering Sexual Violence, which is all radical essays from queer, primarily queer writers talking about sexual violence. And they often talk about the classic scene is you go to the Take Back the Night rally and hear the speech about the survivor or the victim, and you cannot identify your own experience in that speech because you feel like it doesn't describe you. And so I go back and forth in part to acknowledge the trickiness of just picking which term to use, but also to point to the trouble with both terms, which I think also points to the larger sort of problem of how we talk about sexual violence or what we talk about when we talk about it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Rhiannon Graybill. We're talking about her recent book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible. So for some of my listeners, I think that they may have what they consider to be a rather deep and studied experience with biblical texts. But I think some listeners may find it surprising that rape is in the Bible at all. And in particular, you mentioned at one point in your book, Texts After Terror, a passage from Nahum. I think it's from the first chapter. And as you quote it, you talk explicitly, and the word explicitly, rape, is there. But when I went to my Bibles on the shelf, I didn't see the word rape. I saw the word affliction. And so I'd love to hear about some of the semantic flexibility of how rape is even talked about in the Hebrew Bible and why some readers may get the impression that it's not there at all. Yeah. So this is a major problem that I take on in the book. So it's commonly said that there's no biblical Hebrew word that actually means rape. And so the semantic field is somewhat different than in English, which is to say, It isn't to say that there isn't rape or that people don't talk about rape, but there isn't one specific word which gets translated as rape. There's also a strong tendency in English translation to translate away the rape, especially if the rapist might be God, like in that passage in Nahum and in other prophetic passages. And so rape and affliction are like, you you use the same word to talk about both of those, but you can understand why your poor Bible translator doesn't want to have God, the rapist, just like lurking there in Nahum. And so In general, one of the reasons I provide my own translations in the book is what's going on and make that a bit clearer. That being said, the problem with the term rape is also we can think about how do we know what a rape is? And so our common like go to contemporary explanation is rape is sex without consent. But the problem of consent also is that consent assumes certain kinds of people can consent and certain kinds of people already can't consent. So, for example, children can't consent in the United States. You can think about there's writing about disability and certain kinds of people with certain disabilities, can they consent to sexual activity or not? And so consent is actually itself a problematic contemporary concept. And when we start to think about what rape is, even in our own language, it starts to get a little bit fuzzy. So all this to say the language is a problem. Generally, I try to go story by story and draw what's going on. But it's true that you might have read the Bible and not 
seen some of the rapes because the translators might have been hiding them or choosing not to expose the possibility to you. So let's linger there for a moment because you introduced this idea of consent. And to the extent that someone is familiar with that idea, if I've read your book correctly, it assumes that both subjects are on an equal playing field. But as you're pointing out, that's a very recent cultural idea. My impression from reading your book is that it's hard to map that backwards onto ancient cultures. And you even quote some writers who go as far as to say, we can't ever talk about rape in these older cultures at all because a woman would never have had the agency to consent in the first place, so we can't talk about her lack of consent. You choose not to go to that extreme, but you still want to not go to the other extreme, if I'm reading you correctly, of simply saying that any act of power over a woman is a kind of denial of agency, a kind of rape or proto-rape. Now, first of all, I'm, I'm wanting to make sure that I've read you correctly. In anything that I've just said there, would you say it in a different way? No, I think that's a great summary. Thank you. Okay, so if, if that's the case, then, when we look at, and when oftentimes my listeners come to the Bible, I think that there's a real impression that God is going to speak in plain language, and we shouldn't necessarily need any kind of interpretation to get behind what the language really means. And so if God wanted us to hear about rape, God would have said rape in the Bible. I'm oversimplifying clearly. I hope I'm not caricaturing. But what I'm hearing from your answers here is that it's much more complex than that. And this gets back to Barbara Johnson. We we come to the text assuming that we know what it means. We have to read it again to truly be surprised by it. So as we go back to these texts and read them again, what are some ways that listeners can open themselves to the surprise that's there in these texts? So I think the easiest and most important kind of first step is just to read slowly. And that sounds really easy, but I actually think that it's very useful. And so if you think about a story, so one of the stories I talk about in the book is the story of David and Bathsheba. And this is a story that has historically often been interpreted as a great love story. And it's increasingly interpreted and it's sometimes interpreted as a story sort of about sex and danger in the house of David, but it's also increasingly interpreted as a story about rape, right? So David sees Bathsheba and he wants her and he has her brought to him and he has sex with her and he gets her pregnant and so on. And so this is an example of a story that reading with my undergraduates, they interpret it very differently, but especially the ones who maybe haven't grown up like hearing this story read or reading it for the first time, they're just like, wow, this is definitely a rape story. And the other students who are familiar with the text are often They're like, oh, I didn't realize it was like this. So that kind of going back and reading the text just slowly and seeing what's happening can be important. Suspending the assumptions that you bring to the text, I think, can be important. And then I would push back a little bit against the suggestion that if God wanted us to know about rape, it would be clearer in the Bible. First, I think that it is clearer in the Hebrew and some of that is the transmission and shifting cultural norms, but also just the language issue. But I also think that we need to read the text a bit suspiciously sometimes. And so the hermeneutics of suspicion is a classic feminist gesture where it just means you approach the text and you don't necessarily take it at its word with everything it says. You can reading against the grain is another metaphor we use for this. Now, we don't want to let our suspicion tip over into paranoia, but I think it's like we should certainly be aware that there are lots of nasty things in the Bible and rape is certainly among them. One of the things that I really liked about that chapter of David and Bathsheba is that I saw you approaching 
the story again and again. You would do a reading of it, and then you would come back and you would do a reading of it. And the phrase that you kept coming back to was, and I'm going to paraphrase it, and I'm sorry if I misquote it, that what is Bathsheba's desire? What is she really wanting in this moment? And I was really struck by how you came back to that again and again. And as I was reading it, what came to my mind was Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, where he looks at the binding of Isaac, and he comes back to the story, and he tells it, and he retells it, and he retells it. And that was a kind of structural parallel that I spotted. When I say that to you, does that resonate with you, or, or does that seem like I'm on the wrong track? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great parallel. And I love the way that Kierkegaard does that. And I feel like I always feel like when I read that opening part, if you're in trembling, like different retellings hit me in different ways at different times, but you get so much out of that story when you go back over it. I mean, I think the other parallel to Kierkegaard, to caricature him a bit, right? He is just this very sad, passionate man who just keeps throwing himself at the text. And I don't want readers to be sad in that way about the Bible, but there's something about that kind of willingness to stay with the trouble or wrestle with the text in Kierkegaard that I think is a great model for the work that criticism should do. This idea of staying with the trouble, we've talked at various points in the conversation so far about loosely termed the Kantian subject. Okay, so this, this emerges in the late 18th century Kant writing things like his essay, What is the Enlightenment? And the kind of ideal that comes out of those conversations is, as you point out in your book, Texts After Terror, a kind of man with agency. And the very idea of centering a story on a non-male figure or a non-powerful figure already begins to disrupt the comfort of that narrative. Like we're used to looking at a story and naturally seeing the hero be of a certain type. And so by choosing to come back and focus on Bathsheba in the David story, some listeners might push back against that and say, but it's not a story about Bathsheba. How would you counter that? How would you recenter that story and argue for kind of decentering David in that story? So I actually think the fact that it's not a story about Bathsheba in a lot of ways is the point. So there's a temptation to retell the story and to fill in all the details about Bathsheba. The kind of classic example of this is the story of Dina and the novel, The Red Tent, which then becomes like a Lifetime original movie, which retells the story of Dina as a love story, but also kind of does this sort of midrashic work of filling in the backstories of biblical women. And it's such a tempting thing to do because you want these characters to be fully actualized. You want to know what they want. But I think it's really important to hold on to the way that the text represents Bathsheba and doesn't tell us what she wants. It doesn't let her have speech. And she, it doesn't complete her narrative arc. But then she does come back much later and she comes back to do something nasty and unpleasant, which is harm Abishag the Shunammite, which is not at all what we want because we want our survivors either to be tragic and then hopefully die, or if not that, just be really sad. Or we want them to go like kill Bill vengeance, right? We don't want them to disappear and then come back and do something nasty to another woman and then disappear again. And so I think the way that her story doesn't conform to our narrative expectations, or our desire for what makes a good story is really important. I also think Thinking about what is foreclosed to her or like why her story can't be developed is another important question. So in my reading of this story, I talk about peremption and predation. And predation is a model for thinking about sexual violence where the victim is just that, right? It's someone who's preyed upon. And you can think about our language of sexual predator. Even in the biblical story, Nathan talks to David and compares Bathsheba to a lamb. And so that's a way of making her into an innocent animal-like victim. 
And preemption, which is a term that I get from Joseph Fischel, who is a theorist of sexual violence who writes about consent, is a way of talking about foreclosed possibility without putting the victim in this preyed upon role. So it's interesting to think about what Bathsheba wants and also what is closed to Bathsheba because of David's actions. So it's not just that something is done to her, but it's also what's lost to her without taking away, like further removing her agency by just describing her as a victim or creating an imaginary life where she's not a victim, which then is a kind of like gesture that moves outside of the world of the tag. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Rhiannon Graybill. She is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. And we're talking today about her recent book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking with Rhiannon Graybill. She's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, and we're discussing her recent book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible. And as the title implies, we will be dealing with some sensitive subject matter in this conversation. So if you are listening with young ears, please be advised. At the beginning of our conversation, we referenced The Handmaid's Tale and the character Offred. And one of the things that you point out in your book, Texts After Terror, is that Margaret Atwood, the author of The Handmaid's Tale, allows Offred to speak about her own experience. And for those that are unfamiliar with the the story, it involves an enforced impregnation of a group of women. And one of the things that you note is that Offred, in talking about this experience of being impregnated in that way, she says, I didn't think of this as rape. And you step back from that and you say, do we know better than the character does in this particular moment of naming what happens to her? I'm really interested if you're willing to expand on that a little bit. What is our ethical responsibility when we are given someone else's story and they don't tell the story the way that we wish that they would? This is such a big problem. And it's a problem I thought about so much in writing this book. And I'm still thinking about, I would teaching feminist biblical interpretation a few years ago. And I taught The Handmaid's Tale because I was like, oh, this is a great novel. It talks about biblical stories and it it talks about sexual violence. And I was so struck rereading it by this passage that you just referred to where Alfred is talking. It's the scene where um, the commander is having sex with her while she lies between the legs of the commander's wife. This is handmaids, right? We see them in political protests all the time. It's become shorthand for rape and sexual exploitation of women. And Alfred says in that passage, I didn't have a lot of choice, but I had some, and this is what I chose. And I was so angry at Alfred. But then I thought, is it right for me to tell Alfred that her experience is wrong? And if you abstract that out, is it really the ethical thing to tell people, no, no, your experience is wrong, like you actually are experiencing rape? There's a way in which that kind of position of telling someone they're wrong about their own experience can itself feel like an act of violence. But at the same time, you can also think about things like, false consciousness, like it is possible that you have an experience and you misunderstand what happens. This is something we also see in writing by survivors, especially about like childhood sexual trauma, right? Or even 
in everyday experience, sometimes you'll be telling a friend or an acquaintance about something that happened and you'll be like, oh, now let me tell you about that. It actually seems like it wasn't funny. It actually was something that was worse than that. And so I think this is a real problem. I don't have a good solution, but I think being aware of the problem is the best answer I can give. So I don't think that we should always tell people that their experience based on X standard is rape or isn't rape. But at the same time, I think that just, oh, everyone narrates their own experience. Everyone has their own truth about themselves. That can be a position that maybe overplays the amount of agency that we have in a situation. Another sort of cultural text that I take on in my book is this. There's a video that went viral on YouTube a few years ago, tea consent. And the whole idea is that sexual consent is like tea and you can offer it to someone that's like having sex. They could say no or change their mind. And it's cute. Like it gets the idea across. It's also a terrible way to think about consent because having sex is actually not like drinking tea. There are a lot of ways that it's very different. There are a lot of ways that power and subtle differences in power and discomfort all come into play. And so I think it's important to to take seriously in particular discomfort and forms of harm that are vague and hard to name, but then also hold the possibility of letting people name their experiences. So I don't have a good answer to this one, but I I think it's a troublesome problem. The best we can do is think about all of the aspects of narrating experience. Well, and this may be a good place to reintroduce these three concepts that really weave their way throughout your entire book, Texts After Terror, the idea of the fuzzy, the messy, and the icky. So maybe as a way of of bringing them back into the conversation, could you briefly expand for my listeners what you're meaning by these terms? These are terms that I use both to talk about sexual violence in the Bible and to talk about sexual violence more broadly. So fuzzy is a way of thinking about things that are unclear, things that it's not necessarily sure. You're not sure what happened. You can think about fuzzy boundaries. Fuzzy memories is a way to think about trauma and memory. Alcohol makes our memories fuzzy, which is something we often don't want to talk about in the context of sexual violence. Messy is a way of thinking about the consequences, the way that a story can kind of sprawl out of control. Messy is also often used as an insult for a particular kind of woman or sometimes a gay man. You can think about, oh, she's such a hot mess is a way of describing a certain kind of out of control woman. The messiness of the female body is also something that's viewed as very um, icky or uncomfortable, both in the Bible and in contemporary society. You know how every tampon ad is like a woman in white pants, like dancing in a white field, right? There's a sort of fear of messiness. And then icky is a way of thinking about things that, It's not a judgment about whether something is legal or even whether something, it's a thing way of naming the kind of uncomfortable feeling, things that cross a line, not the sort of, I'm here, I'm mumbling, but that because icky is partly also a way of trying to put a name on something that's that sort of visceral feeling of disgust or uncomfortableness that you often get that doesn't necessarily rise to a certain kind of actionable event. So In the Bible, a great example of Icky is the story of Lot and his daughter. So Lot offers up his daughter to be raped when the men of Sodom want to rape his visitor. The daughters are miraculously spared. And then later, Lot and his daughters are the only survivors after God sends down the fire and brimstone and they're all in a cave. The daughters get him drunk and have sex with Lot so that they can have children because they think they're the only people left on earth. And maybe a story about Lot being raped by his daughters in retaliation. It's maybe a patriarchal fantasy where Lot imagines he's raped by his daughters because he actually wants to rape them. It's maybe a story about how the end of the world is terrible and you have to do what you can. One thing that's very clear about the story is that it's very icky. 
and if you don't believe me, just try telling a room of teenagers a story. Like it, it's icky and you can feel that icky, sticky energy when you talk about the story. And so I use these three terms, fuzzy, messy, and icky. And I also kind of blur them together at points, just as ways of talking about the parts of sexual violence, the ways that it exceeds the language that we normally have. So I wanted really visceral vernacular terms as a way of naming something that I think otherwise goes sort of under talked about, especially in scholarly writing about sexual violence, especially in biblical studies. One of the things that strikes me, and as you were giving this answer, I was just reminded of it again, of my experience of reading your book, Texts After Terror, is you've just used these three terms to talk about a lack of clarity. But what really struck me was how clearly I was able as a reader to follow what you were meaning. Like it's, it was very clear to me the care with which you had chosen these terms. And it was very clear from your examples, the way in which these terms applied. And you've talked uh, at other points in our conversation about thinking about victim and survivor. And at one point hyphenating victim survivor, I'd love to kind of step back and ask a meta question about how you came to the structure of this book and how you achieved the kind of clarity that I experienced as a reader. It seemed seemed to me as a reader to be almost effortless because it was very easy to read and to follow what you were meaning, but I imagine it wasn't easy to achieve. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Well, thank you. It was not effortless to achieve, so I am glad that it appears that way because that was my goal. So I sort of, the book started with Fuzzy and Messy and Icky. I was asked to give a talk about sexual violence in the Bible, and I was like, I'm so tired of talking about these rape stories in the same way. I just can't possibly do it. I don't know what to do. And so I, I thought a lot about how else we could think about sexual violence. And I was worried that I had gone too far, but I decided to test it out, and it, it worked in the talk. But so I started with what became the chapter about consent in the book. So I started with Dina and Tamar and Lot's daughters and they started with Fuzzy and Messy and Nikki. And I started to think about, okay, like these categories are doing the work I want to do. They're naming this kind of space that otherwise is not really being talked about that seems really important. So I thought about that. And then the sort of chapter before that, where I set forth some kind of theoretical principles, I talk about, that's where I talk about Sedgwick and I talk about Don Haraway and Sarah Ahmed, set up this theoretical framework. That was actually originally part of Together with Fuzzy Metsiyiki, it was too much for one chapter, as you can now tell. So there was a sort of writing a book is often, I think, a process of like, you come up with a thing and then it gets too big and then you cut it in half. It's an amoeba-like process of writing. It, it took a while for it all fit together. Let's just say there are many drafts on the computer that did not make the final cut. But I think the through line is thinking about how else we can think about sexual violence. I will say I didn't want to talk about the Levite's concubine originally. I thought I would just leave it out because it wasn't going to work for my theory. And then I was like, that is not responsible scholarship. Also, this is a real problem. This story, you can't just ignore it. And so it's towards the end because I think it both is the culmination and it challenges some of what I said before. I think it's good that I included it, but I would encourage everyone listening not to give up on that last chapter. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today, we're speaking with Rhiannon Graybill about her recent book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible. Well, as we're moving towards the end of our conversation, I want to return to another concept that you introduced towards the end of the book that you really describe as an umbrella term for all the other things that we've been saying here, and it's this notion of unhappy reading. You've talked about it a little bit already in our conversation, but I'd really like if you could expand on it even more. When you say unhappy reading, you don't mean readings that make people sad. You mean something different than that, but help us to line out what you do mean by that term. So I think of unhappy reading as an alternative to telling sad stories. 
For Tribble in Text of Terror, she says something like the work of feminist criticism is to tell sad stories. And as I was working on this project, I became obsessed with this idea from Tribble. On the one hand, it sounds very humble, right? You're just telling a story. But then if you think about it, there's actually a lot of kind of power there, right? It's assuming that you as the critic have the authority to tell. And it's assuming that there's an already set kind of story that can be told. And that story is a sad story. And so part of my larger project, right, is thinking about what we can do besides just call these stories sad stories and feel sad about them. And so I didn't want to offer happy stories as an alternative because like clearly these are not happy stories. But I'm interested in unhappiness because I think it's a more capacious term that has more kind of critical space in it. So there's a theorist, Sarah Ahmed, who has a great book called The Promise of Happiness, where she talks about all of the kind of ways that happiness can be coercive and also the ways that unhappiness can open up possibility. There's even like a utopian kind of possibility sometimes in unhappiness. And she talks about queer unhappiness in particular, unhappy queer stories and the way they create breathing room or space in the canon. And so I was interested in thinking about unhappiness as a kind of openness or unsettledness. You can think of felicitous plot as one that ends happily. An unhappy narrative is also a story that doesn't really end the way that you want or doesn't end. So an unhappy reading could be a reading that takes seriously that the text is unhappy. It could be a reading that makes you unhappy because of how you feel about the text. Maybe because you feel so upset about it. Maybe because you read a hundred rape stories and this one just doesn't really bother you that much. And then you feel this kind of secondary guilt about not feeling bad about something you feel like you should feel bad about. Maybe you're unhappy because you can't have a strong theory that explains everything about sexual violence. There isn't one sort of solution that's going to solve everything. But I think unhappy reading names all of these ways of staying with the text and kind of being open to different possibility and being frustrated by the text, but then not, not giving up. Elsewhere, Tribble talks about the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel, and she uses that as a metaphor for criticism. And I think that's much more, that resonates with me much more this wrestling, right? The difference, I think, is for Tribble, like you maybe, you get the blessing at the end, and maybe my book is stuck in the place of wrestling instead. But I think that's a really important ethical and critical place, and it's a place that I want us to claim, even if it makes us unhappy, because sometimes the best things make us unhappy. I'm struck by so many things in that answer. One is this commitment to incompleteness. So a willingness to allow a reading to not be the final say, a willingness to allow a reading to be unsettling rather than tying up into a nice happy ending, and a willingness to be, and to use your example of the, the wrestling of Jacob, to be injured by a reading. And not only to be blessed by a reading, but that blessing to be paired with an injury of some sort or a, a change in one's kind of approach to walk. I'm thinking now of Judith Butler and the way that we walk. So the wrestling changes the way that we walk. I'm really struck by that. It seems to me, even though the word is unhappy, it seems like there's a real commitment to hope in that style of reading. Now, when I say that, I'm, I'm, I'm reading something into what you just said. When I use that word hope, does that land with you in a way that makes you comfortable? Or would you say, no, this is not a hopeful reading. This is a reading that pushes us more towards something else. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea of it being hopeful. I think I think I might use the language of playful because something else that I want to do, and I've talked about this less, but it's also important. I want feminist criticism to be playful and pleasurable and fun. And I think that even in thinking about the darkest text in the Bible, we can also hold a space for pleasure as interpreters. And so I think I would think of it maybe in the language of pleasure, but I think there is hope. I'm also 
just thinking about this current moment that we're living in, there's been some writing about tragic optimism now and thinking about that in relation to the climate crisis and things. But I think there is a kind of, there is a hope here, I would say. Yeah, unhappy hope maybe, but I'll give you hope. And at your title, Texts After Terror, we've talked about this in contrast to Phyllis Tribble's Texts of Terror. But I want to return now to this idea of the responsibility of those that live after live after tragedy, live after terror, those who live after the story has been told the first time. And I want to ask about the responsibility of those who live after. What responsibility do we have to face terror, to face the stories of terror? What responsibility do we have to listen? And what responsibility do we have as re-narrators of what we've heard? So I think we have all of those responsibilities. I think that the listening and the openness and the listening to the ways the multiple ways the story are told stories can be told is very important. I think there is an obligation to tell this story, but then also to hold space for different ways of being. I mean, in in your question, I find myself thinking about the Frankfurt School, right? And on the one hand, we can think about Adorno and poetry after Auschwitz being barbaric. We can also think about the kind of productivity of art and variety of artistic responses. I mean, I think Benjamin's comment about there's no document of civilization that's not also a document of barbarism. I think that's true of the Bible in general. I think it's true when we think about biblical representations of sexual violence in particular. So I think that we have the obligation more than anything to continue the struggle. I think that we are allowed to take breaks. Sarah Ahmed, who I keep coming back to because she's been a really helpful thinker for me, she talks about being a feminist killjoy, but also you're allowed to take a vacation from being a feminist killjoy because if you're a killjoy all the time, then you will kill yourself with your joy killing. And so I think we have a responsibility, but I think we can also find pleasure in doing our criticism. And then also sometimes it's okay to take a little break from reading the rape stories in the Bible. One of my takeaways from that answer that you just gave, but also from reading your book, Texts After Terror, is that unlike some feminist critics, you would, in my impression, you would say that the Bible, even with all of its messiness, its ickiness, and its fuzziness, it is still a text that is eminently worth reading and worth returning to. Now, when I characterize my impression of your answers and your book that way, Am I on to how you would describe it? Is this still a book worth reading or do we need in some ways to cut pieces out of this book in order to make it palatable or do we need to abandon the book entirely? It's absolutely worth reading. So I, it's, it's wonderful literature. It's troubling ethically. It has some beautiful poetry to some really boring parts. It's fantastic and fun to read, but also I think it, it's such an important text. So I would very much not be of the Thomas Jefferson cut out the parts you don't like and make a better, shorter, nicer Bible. If anything, maybe my shortcoming as a critic is that I'm always drawn to the worst parts of the text and the most kind of dramatic and horrific parts of the text. But I think it's absolutely valuable as a literary text, as a theological text. So yes, stick with the Bible. Well, Rhiannon Grable, I have to say, even though you were writing about some of the most horrific parts of the Bible, I found myself at every point of your book, Texts After Terror, learning, turning pages, and having my eyes pop open afresh because, again, the clarity with which you're writing about this fuzziness, this messiness, this ickiness, it is so followable. And you make your case so well, both from your own ideas, but also from the theorists that you draw from. This is not going to be a book for everybody, but for those that really 
are are able to venture into the world that you're giving us in this book. It is a book that is so worth reading, and I'm so grateful that you took the time to write it, but also thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. So we've been speaking today with Rhiannon Graybill. She is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. We have been discussing her recent book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijip. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.